since I come from a country in which none of the words in this title make any sense anymore, I felt free to express myself in a foreign language, but I hope that my language will not turn you into a citizen of my country. This talk will be divided into two parts. First, the theological question behind the, def the defense of natural law ethics, and second, the natural law under the light of divine government. So let's start with the first part. It is a commonplace to describe the most profound cultural change that happened to Western societies in our times as a movement of secularization. In its essence, secularization is the seclusion of man's realm from God's lordship. This worldly life is what matters. Rationality has therefore to be focused on this world. So, if secularization were everything this cultural change is about, we would have expected to see the triumph of natural law ethics. After all, natural law ethics is nothing else but ethics adequate to who this world is. But during the last decades, what happened is quite the opposite. For instance, the church is today a sign of contradiction not so much because it preaches the Trinity and Jesus Christ, but first and foremost because it champions natural law ethics. It appears then that secularization goes hand in hand with another cultural movement, less publicized, which is denaturation. As secularization is the seclusion of man's realm from God's lordship, Denaturation is the seclusion of man from nature. The estrangement from God replicates into the estrangement from nature. Disregarding the relation of creation leads to disregarding the relation to the creation. But what is denaturation? As a corollary to secularization, Denaturation appeared when the scientific revolution uncovered the various determinisms in nature. Determinism entails passivity. So, the more nature was described in its passivity to determinisms, the more philosophers had to accentuate the estrangement of man from nature to affirm, <coughs> sorry, to affirm his autonomous activity. Denaturation resulted from the inability to articulate the laws discovered by natural sciences with the specificity of human free will. We could say that this is denaturation's basic principle. So being a nature or being a subject, embracing determinism or conquering autonomy became a strict alternative. Along the branches of this alternative, we can distinguish, I think, today, four kinds of denaturations. The first one can be called a denaturation through civilization. There are two genera of laws, one incommensurable with the other, 
one consisting in facts, the facts of nature, the other consisting of duties, the duties of man, the is and the art, necessity and obligation. Humanity has then to extract itself from the state of nature. Man has to denature himself in order to humanize himself through culture, social, con social contract, or civilization. The second kind of denaturation goes one step further. Against passive subjection, the single subject has to exist by himself in exercising his active will. He has then to shape his own self against the laws of nature, against social norms, or even against what his own essence dictates. In all cases, the subject has to denature himself to exist by himself as an active subject. The third kind of denaturation goes the other way around. As natural sciences extensively show, man is not deprived of, of determinisms. <clears throat> On the contrary, he has them all, physical, biological, psychological, or social. Thus, scientific reductionism denatures man in that it dissolves man's nature into a tangle of determinisms. The fourth kind of denaturation is an old one, but it is also a new temptation because of the growing feeling that our relation to this world endangers what we are. Wouldn't we be better off if ruled directly by a divine law, a law unquestionable because it's not from this world, and a law obliged to engage in and practical judgments. To put it bluntly, wouldn't we be better off with Koran and the likes? Man is denatured in that he has to be as passively submitted to as other beings, but under a precept which owes nothing to nature. What is wrong with the basic principle of denaturation? Why is it so difficult to articulate the laws discovered by natural sciences with the specificity of human free will? In his question 24 de Veritate, Thomas Aquinas tackles this problem by approaching human free will on two different grounds. <clears throat> First, we know by reason that human acts are sometimes good and sometimes evil. And if we look for the cause of this inconsistent behavior, we find that there is absolutely no cause in God or in the universe to explain this singularity. Free will constitutes in the universe a principle like no other in that its outcome is not fixed. We see then that Aquinas was well aware of the opposition between natural determinisms and free will. But he offers us a second approach of the problem. We know by faith that man must have free will to merit and demerit, to be the subject of reward and punishment. 
Faith helps us to, un to understand the purpose of free will, which is to attain the final end as a reward because man exercises a free judgment on his end. Therefore, man's movement toward his end stands out from the crowd of movements in the universe in that its principle is free will. But far from isolating man apart from the rest of the universe, free will is on the contrary what makes man find his place within the universe saturated with movements. Among all the movements of the universe, man's movement is only spe a specific one in that free judgment is its principle. <clears throat> and here is a diagram of movements in the universe. There are violent movements uh, as opposed to natural movements. And inside natural movements, movements by another or by oneself. And inside natural movement by oneself, natural movement by oneself through natural judgment or through free judgment. So when we consider the principle by which a being is moved toward an end, we can sort movements out according to the principle's degree of perfection in this being. And it appears that the more a mobile masters its own movement, the more this mobile has to possess a perfect principle. And we see this in material substances. It is only a mere intrinsic principle. In animals, it will be an intrinsic principle with judgment, natural judgment. And in man, it will be an intrinsic principle with free judgment. This explains the specificity of man. To move himself through free judgment is the human mode of being the subject of movement in which everything is moved. Man is moved toward his end as everything else, but he possesses a principle to be a mover of himself, and this principle is perfect to the point that it requires a rational judgment about the end of the movement known as an end. As Aquinas says, those beings which possess reason move themselves toward the end because they have the mastery over their own acts through free will, which is a faculty of will and reason. For this reason, it is proper to the rational nature that it tends toward the end as taking itself into action or steering itself for the end while the irrational nature is like acted upon or steered by another. All four kinds of denaturation fail to acknowledge man's natural specificity. Scientific reductionists, as well as religious determinists, do not understand the free judgment which makes the human mode of being moved so peculiar. As for modern autonomists and postmodern autonomists, they do not understand free will is what makes human movements as natural as any other natural movement in the universe. In sum, to be a rational mover of oneself 
is only a particular mode of being moved toward the end. <coughs> the miscomprehension of man's specificity within the universe renders superfluous the very concept of natural law. With scientific reductionism, there's nothing in which natural law could differ from the common laws of, natures, of nature. With religious determinism, there's no need of natural law because man is only subjected to a, a revealed divine law. With modern autonomy, natural law is residual. It is what has not yet been replaced by civilization. And with postmodern autonomy, natural law is the dearest enemy of the self-defined subjectivity, for the concept of natural law suggests that the active free will is subjected to something. On the contrary, when the human mode of being moved is acknowledged, it becomes clear that man's movement has to be subjected to the law of his specific nature as everything else's movement is subjected to the law of its own nature. To summarize this law of man's natural movement, Aquinas often quotes Ben Sirach, God made man from the beginning and left him in the hand of his own counsel. That being in the hand of his own counsel is distinctive of man's natural movement means that man has no choice here. Man has no other way to take action than to take responsibility of himself, not by affirming his autonomy against nature, but by entering into his own counsel as his nature orders him to do. So, before every other consideration on natural law, it has to be said that natural law, lex, lex naturalis, is properly the law of lex nature directing man's natural movement. As Aquinas says, to the law belongs all that man is naturally inclined to. And among those, it is proper to man that he is inclined to act according to reason." End quote. End quote. <clears throat> we see then that to understand natural law properly, we have to follow a certain methodology. We must not start with what distinguishes man from the rest of the universe, for we would inevitably end up with an unsolvable opposition between free will and nature. On the contrary, we must start with what man's movement has in common with the other movements of other beings. Man's free will is not, first of all, a capacity to choose. Man's free will is, first of all, a necessity to judge. That's the point. It's, first of all, a necessity to judge. And this means that when man is freely, freely judging to move himself to action, man is moved to act in this way like every other being. And the question is, why is it so? Why is it that man has to be moved? What is this text? All creatures have a potency or something in potency because God alone is pure act. 
Therefore, it is necessary that all creatures are mutable and that God alone is immutable. But there is a double potentiality, one according to what a thing possesses, the other according to what it is made to possess. This second potentiality comes with a creature in that it is not plainly perfect, in that there's always a possibility of receiving. Because of that potentiality too, every creature is said to be mutable with mutation understood here in a loose sense where all receiving means some sort of being acted upon or being moved. End quote. Because they are not pure acts, all creatures are always opened to new acts. And when these new acts pull the creature out of its potency, the creature is moved to what its nature is made for. There is then in creatures a receptivity to natural movements. In these natural movements, creatures become in act, receiving the act they are made for. We have a concept to signify this, which is perfection. Because no creature is perfect in one act, all of them have to be moved to perfection in multiple and successive acts. All creatures have to become perfect. Three other concepts find their place here. Perfection is the end of the mobile as such. Perfection is a good for the mobile as such. And perfection makes the goodness of the mobile. So every creature has to be the subject of movements to become inapt, to become perfect, to attain its end, to possess its goodness, to obtain the good it reaches after. In the teaching of Aquinas, all these aspects converge in one notion, that of operation. The operation of a created being is this additional act in which uh, this, this additional act, sorry, this natural movement, which is its perfection, its end, the good this being is reaching after, and finally what achieves its goodness. Operation and divine government. If we now zoom out and consider the whole picture of all the operations, which is mainly what the movements in the world in front of us are made of, and if we consider especially those beings which do not know what they're doing when they operate, we realize that they mostly do what they are made for. They continuously operate and reach so regularly their end that our world, while is constantly in motion, is predictable, stable, organized, and harmonious. Here is, uh, hence, says Aquinas, this settled order of things in itself indicates plainly the government of the world. It is as if someone were to enter a tidy house and ponder from such an organization the rationale of the organizer." End quote. 
Our world in motion, tidy as it is, shows that it is governed because to govern is nothing else than to steer the governed to the, for the end. The very fact that man becomes perfect, that he is moved as everything else, and that in his operations he attains his end specifically through judgment, confirms that he is subject to divine government as every other being. Here is this text, government consists in some change of the governed by the governor, but it is required that diverse mobiles will be moved according to diverse modes. For instance, some uh, are by themselves naturally agents, possessing the mastery of their acts, and those are governed by God, not only in that they are moved by God, who operates in them intimately, but also in that they are led to the good and withdrawn from evil, thanks to precepts and prohibitions, reward and punishment. This is not the mode according to which irrational creatures are governed by God, for they are only acted upon and do not... So when the apostle says that God does, does not take care for oxen, he does not entirely re withdraw, them off, withdraw them from the care of divine government, he only draws them off the mode which properly falls to the rational creature. As this text shows, because he is a moved mover through rational judgment, man has to be not less but more carefully governed than others through legal precepts and justice. Because, because his end is the beatitude of glory in the operations of knowing and loving God, man needs more care than others to receive this highest end. His rational judgment on the end, known as an end, needs to be guided by natural law, by the positive laws of the human societies, and by the revealed divine law, all kinds of laws irrational beings do not need. I come to the conclusion of this part. From a theological point of view, the concept of natural law is necessary to locate man within the universe as a subject of divine government. Human operations consist in a specific mode of being moved. They are the movements of a rational nature. Man is a moved mover through free judgment. So, the laws of nature, ruling the natural movements of all creatures according to, the, to their diversity, assume a specific form when it comes to man. The notion of natural law indicates how being a rational mover of oneself is a special mode of being moved. Defined as such, the concept of natural law functions as a denaturation sensor. When denaturation occurs, at the same time, the concept of natural law and the theology of divine government get blurred or simply vanish. Here is the place to remind this important statement. It is, it is clearly wrong for some to be in the opinion that the truth of faith 
is not at all concerned with what one feels about creatures as long as he feels rightly about God. For the error about creatures overflows into a false opinion about God. It leads the soul of man away from God. This is confirmed with the four kinds of denaturation. First kind, if, man, if man's movement shares no common end with the natural world, who can there be one Lord of all? Second kind, if man, if man is an absolute mover of himself, there might be a God, but he's, is he still the Lord anymore? Third kind, if man is only the puppet of determinisms, it, is it true that the Lord of all is provident, just, and merciful? Finally, fourth kind, how can the Lord if the rational creature cannot be left to its own counsel, but has to be governed only through revealed commands. We see here that to hold on natural law ethics is not, sorry, <clears throat> to hold on natural law ethics is not only legitimate on philosophical grounds, it is also a theological necessity for Christians because, because a basic tenet the, the faith in the Lord is, is here at stake. Many Catholics today, influenced by the general movement of denaturation, share the opinion that we should spare ourselves the burden of defending natural law ethics. And we should focus instead on preaching the gospel. Faith in Jesus Christ seems enough. But besides the fact that it would lead it would be a direct path to a religious kind of denaturation like Koran. What would be our faith in Christ if it were no more the faith in Jesus Christ our Lord? To have faith in Jesus Christ our Lord, we need natural law ethics because Jesus Christ is our Lord in governing the universe, that is, every nature towards its end. I come to the second part of this talk. Natural law under the light of divine government. In the second part, I take the problem of natural law the other way around, starting with divine government. And we'll be following the line just from God, divine government to natural law. In man's intellect, man's, re man's reason. First, natural law is a ratio of government. Basically, the theological viewpoint on creatures is twofold. For one part, God, uh, sorry, for one part, creatures represent God's perfection in that they are created. For the other part, creatures are ordained to God in that they are governed to their end. Aquinas' uncommon position is that theology sheds light on nat natural law not on the ground of the divine action of creation, but on the ground of the divine action of government. Here is this text. The ratio of the things which have to be crafted is called an art or an exemplar of the things realized. 
In the same way also, the ratio governing the acts of the subjects satisfies the notion of law. Therefore, as the ratio of the divine wisdom through which all are created has the ratio of art or exemplar or idea, in the same way, the ratio of the divine wisdom moving all to their proper end satisfies the notion of law, and it is called the eternal law. The notion of law refers to the wisdom which moves things toward the end, not to the wisdom which crafts things. This applies first to the eternal law, but also to all subsequent laws, including natural law. That natural law shares in the ratio of divine government and not of creation doesn't mean that it has nothing to do with creation. But it means that it rules the movement that take place in human beings in order for them to reach the end. In other words, natural law doesn't rule man's action so that they are consistent with man's essence. Natural law so that they are consistent with man's end. Second point, the government of a creature with intellectual knowledge. To understand what natural law is, we need to turn to the end human beings are governed to. All creatures proceed from God, not only in that divine goodness is the reason of their production, they also proceed from God in that divine goodness is their end. Here is this text. Not only the divine, is the divine goodness the end of the establishment of things, but the divine goodness has also to be the end of all operation and movements of any creature. Therefore, all, movements and, all movement and action of anything tends to the good. But whatever this good is, it is some similitude of the highest good, just as whatever a being is, it is some similitude of the prime being. So, the motion and action of anything tends to the assimilation to the divine goodness. In their movements and operations toward the good, creatures are governed by God to their perfection. But we need here to give attention to a, de a decisive aspect, which is the mode of this divine action. Creatures proceed from God as from the first co cause in all genera of active causes, that is, efficient, exemplary, and final causality. Creatures' operations are no exception, and in this matter, final causality comes first, Divine goodness taken as an end, divine goodness taken as an end, exerts its influence on creatures according to the causal mode of the end, which consists in attracting, in causing an inclination in others. The proper effect of government in each creature consists, therefore, in a movement, in the movement of inclination toward the good so that each creature moved to operate acquires a similitude of the divine goodness. This inner and spontaneous inclination is what defines the appetite of a being, 
And note here that appetitus is different from desire. These are two different notions. We see then that divine goodness is the end that sets all the appetites in motion in all creatures of the universe, so much so that every moved appetite is the natural principle of every being's operation. Just uh, beginning with our voluntary acts, in all our voluntary acts, we reached for some good, whatever it was. Each one of these good was a particular way of being attracted by divine goodness. That being said, we must notice that all creatures are attracted by divine goodness in that the good is the object of their appetite. Thus, their inclination diversifies according to how divine goodness is apprehended as the good. The mode of the appetite is then proportioned to the mode of cognition of the good inclining the appetite. So there will be mainly three modes of appetite, the intellectual appetite, the sensitive appetite, and the natural appetite. The intellectual appetite benefits from the depth of the intellectual knowledge. Man knows the good in everything that is good. He forms the notion of the good's attractiveness it's ratio boni, it's reason of goodness. As a result, the intellectual appetite is inclined toward the universal good as such. It appears then that the attraction of divine goodness in man naturally involves the intellect. And the interplay between will and intellect is the foundation of free will, indeed, man has to pursue beatitude in numerous operations, each of them requiring a judgment on a contingent particular end. Man then has to determine through judgment and election which operation is the good that is worth willing and pursuing. Thus, free will is a vis electiva, a force of election based on a judgment between contingent opposites. This election makes free will the cause of its own movement to take action. Yet, there wouldn't be any election of a particular end if it weren't because of the ultimate end which moves the will as a first cause. Man is therefore the master of his actions because he is moved by his end through his reason and his will. This mode of being governed by God is proper to man and it differentiates man from all irrational beings. Point three, a rational nature needs natural law to be governed. The judgment that takes place in the free will's activity can be described as a practical inference from the general to the particular and from the, the necessary to the contingent. But this is only an external description and we need to understand what lies behind. What are you, why is it that we come in practical judgment from the general to the particular? 
As we have just seen, in electing what is for the end, what is ad finem, man is actively engaged in his own government toward the end. Now, this election requires a rectitude of the will by which the will is properly ordered to the ultimate end. The saints receive this rectitude of the will in the vision of the divine essence. Whatever they love is necessarily loved as ordered to God. But in this present life, we do not enjoy the beatific vision which makes willing everything for God straightforward. However, what makes the rectitude of our will is that whatever we love is necessarily loved under the common notion of good. For we are moving ourselves in that we know the ratio boni of our actions and works. And this point is crucial. From the point of view of the causality of the end, the end is prior to what is for the end, because the ultimate end is the first final cause of every particular operation. This causal priority of the end shows in the fact that the will is naturally inclined to the universal good. But it also shows in the intellect's operation, because the will moves the intellect. What makes a judgment a practical judgment is that the common notion of good is the intelligible light under which the particular good is assessed. In the practical judgment, the causality of the ultimate end is found in that a principle about the good guides the judgment to its conclusion on a particular good. This principle in the intellect is the impression, impressio, of the ratio of the ultimate end. From this principle, what is for the end can be measured on the scale of this measure comes to be also the rule that will guide the ensuing action. Here, we have to take into account the human, the human specific condition of the intellect. Man has a rational nature. Because of the faintness of the intellectual light in him, he has to acquire most of what he knows and to discover the truth discursively, moving from something to another and from principles to conclusions. Contrary to angels, whose intellect knows in the simple intuition of the principle all what the principle entails, man knows the first, principle in, the first principles in his intellect and has then to exercise his reason to reach to conclusions. Therefore, the practical judgment goes rationally from the general to the particular because the reason has to discover what is the best to do in the order uh, to the ultimate end. There is no exercise of free will without a practical moral inquiry. It appears then that 
if the human reason didn't have any principle at hand to, to discover what has to be done, it wouldn't be able to order the human acts to the ultimate end according to their ratio boni. And the will, deprived of any rectitude, wouldn't be able to elect this more than that. The first principles of the practical reason are then a measure of the order to the ultimate end, from which the reason can judge and rule what good is to be done and what evil is to be avoided. In that the measure and rule for the common good, the first principles satisfy the notion of law. And in that they are in the intellect the precepts by which man knows how to attain the perfection of his nature, they are called the precepts of the natural law. They say what nature is for, starting with the most general apprehension of the first final cause, which is the common good. Four, and final. Natural law is properly a law in the rational creature. I'm sorry, I'm a little late. I have drawn the line going from divine government to the intellectual appetite, then from the intellectual appetite to free will, then inside free will to the free judgment, then to the principles of free judgment, and finally to natural law. As it appears then, God really governs man from within the principles of his actions. God, as Aquinas says, God governs man intimately, as he does in every creature. As it appears then, God really governs man from within the principles of his actions. First, as every creature, man is inclined toward the good, his appetite is attracted by his end. And second, in conformity with his rational nature, precepts give man the ability to rationally measure and rule his way to perfection. This intimacy is at the core of Aquinas' teaching on divine government. As the Book of Wisdom says, the divine wisdom ordered all things sweetly, disponit omnia suaviter. Essential to the divine government's suavity is, this, is the understanding of law as an injunction of reason. Natural law is not a force binding the will on predisposed tracks. Natural law is a light empowering reason to judge rightly what is for the end and take action accordingly. This comprehension is paramount in Aquinas' doctrine of law and it has theological consequences. For when the notion of law is ascribed to divine government, it isn't to indicate that the universe is governed by divine will, but it is to indicate that the universe is governed by divine reason. Here, the notion of law complements that of providence. Providence designates the ratio of the government. It signifies the order of all things to the end in the divine reason. 
But the notion of law says more than providence. It apprehends three other components of the divine government's ratio. First, the ordination to the end is an ordination for the common good of the universe, because the universe is a community sharing the same end. Second, the order to the end in that its mode is the injunction of a rule and a measure is an expression of God's care for the universe. That there are laws means that God takes care of the universe. Third, the order to the end is applied to every being so much so that the whole universe obeys the eternal law. We see then that the eternal law is this eternal ratio of divine government in the divine reason, which is a rule and a measure steering the universe towards divine goodness and universe as a whole, as a community, and which is carefully enjoined and diligently applied. Eternal law is an actual active injunction within the creatures. All creatures partake, partake in the eternal law in that they are measured and ruled by it in their actual inclination to their proper end and the reparation. However, irrational beings cannot know this eternal ratio they partake in. This entails that they don't have in them the eternal law in the mode of a law, but only in the mode of a determinism. Of a determinism. determinism is in them the way natural law is. They are passively steered for the end and do not move themselves to the end as an end. Human beings are among creatures in this, of this universe. As every other being, they receive the impression of the, of the eternal law and are, and are inclined to their end. They obey the law of their nature. However, this inclination moves them to act by themselves, knowing the end as an end, mastering their own acts. They have then to enter into a rational inquiry based on principles laid down by the re human reason as precepts. In other words, contrary to irrational beings, human beings share in the eternal law in having, in having as in habitus, in having in themselves a law from which they judge freely and govern themselves to their due act and end. This implies that the human intellect is illuminated with the eternal so that it can judge on what is temporal. Man has some glimpse on the ratio, the eternal ratio that is in God, this ratio of government, of government that is in God. Aquinas defines natural law accordingly. This is the quote. The natural law is nothing else than a participation in, of the eternal law in the rational creature. As rational, that means as knowing this ratio. 
Man's knowledge of eternal is faint but decisive in that he can merit the eternal life and take a part in the progress of the universe toward its end, divine goodness, governing himself and other creatures, rational or irrational. However, this dignity can go astray. Passions can impede the practical reason from applying the first principle precept of natural law, which is the good is to be done and the evil to be avoided. But secondary precepts, which are derived from the first through some rational process, can be more commonly and permanently lost from sight by reason. And here we come back to the cultural movement of denaturation with which I started. Autonomists forms of denaturation detach reason from the light of natural law, or even they make reason rising up against this light of natural law. As a result, man loses his landmarks because his reason works without principles, and, has, and as a consequence, his will lacks rectitude. He will then be prone to ideologies and their alternative precepts, and his acts, man's acts, will hurt the natural world he lives in because he won't realize that he shares with the universe the same common good. On the opposite side, determinists' form of denaturation eliminate all goods proper to humans, that is, all goods that do not fit with deterministic behaviors. They lead then to inhumane societies in which practical reason has no place because it has been replaced by totalitarianism and technical procedures. I live in the European Union. As a result, man cannot exercise anymore his mastering role over natural beings because he is induced to behave as passively as they do. He submits to brute forces and he comes to admire sheer and violent power. There are two lessons, and this is my conclu final conclusion, there are two lessons about denaturation, that the, this denaturation that all Western societies are about to learn the hard way. We are going to learn, to learn those lessons about denaturation. First, the first lesson is that natural law always win in the end. It's like the bank in Las Vegas. <laughs> natural law always win in the end because it is how the, how the world is governed by God. Societies estranged from natural law are the cause of their own collapse in, the very, in their very attempt to establish themselves firmly. The, mo the more they want to be firm, the more they estrange themselves from natural law, the more they accelerate their collapse. Second lesson. Human dignity and freedom flourish only when natural law guides, guides the moral life. Depression and resentment spread where, where it's not the case. 
These two lessons are nothing new. The sacred scriptures are packed with them being repeated again and again. The good news is that this repetition is not for despair, but for opening the hearts to conversion, penance, and salvation by the grace of God. I thank you for your attention. Thank you for it's not only a well-argued, but also a beautiful theme. Um, I'm glad you said at the end there are two lessons about denaturation for our Western societies. I think you could also add Muslim dominated societies as well, what you said. Because I felt at the beginning this argument was being made as a kind of universal argument. And that I'm not sure, I'm not sure, I wonder if it's a bit more historically determined that we get the impression of at the beginning. Especially I'm sitting next to someone from Korea who gave a very good talk yesterday about Buddhism in, in Asia. And I'm wondering whether the very initial thesis, which is secularization leads to denaturation, is held in, a country, in countries where Confucianism, for instance, is the dominant philosophical matrix. So I just wanted to say that I think the argument, us Westerners, is perfectly relevant, well, very well done, but I'm not sure if it holds universally. Okay, thanks. Uh, thanks a lot. Um, I, I hope I, I had understood because uh, uh, we don't hear very well uh, from here. Um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, if I understand your objection that my presentation was mainly for, uh, from the Western uh, point of view. Hmm? Uh, that's perfectly correct. Uh, the, my, my point is that uh, when, uh, I, w I wanted to link, to show the link between secularization, which is the theology of divine government, and denaturation, estrangement from natural law. And I think that in our Western societies, we are experiencing this exactly. So in this sense, uh, Western societies are a laboratory of this problem. When, uh, when we go for in, in different countries uh, with different cultures, especially those cultures with, which has not been shaped by Christianity, uh, we come back to the real life. Huh? And the real life is that uh, natural law is natural for almost anyone in the world, which is I have to know how, what, what, what to do, and I need principles to know what, what is my place in this world. What do I have to do in this world? Okay? And this is precisely what we have left in the West, in Western societies. So other people, I think, in the world function rationally. They function normally, and then the problem will be to receive the gospel and to receive the revelation as the accomplishment of this natural law. Okay, but we in Western societies live the other, other way around. That's what was just my point. Uh, I, I would like to, to ask you if, uh, for example, when I when I read this kind of text of the nature of the sumatology, um, I have the impression that. Uh, the idea of law is, uh, you, you said, eternal uh, law is properly law. But in a certain sense, I have the impression that it's very important to 
to maintain the, the theological level of this, of this aspect. Because, for example, in other texts, for example, in Summa Nota Gentiles, the third book, the, the chapter uh, 129, Aquinas is very clear um, saying that uh, uh, it's not correct or it's not exhausting the idea that, uh, for example, we have uh, inclination, the, the um, virtues, uh, also the moral principles are uh, exactly and only laws. Because, for example, in this, in this chapter, Aquinas says that we have a a natural law, and so it's not correct to um, to say that what is established by the divine law is uh, correct only because it's a law, but also because it's uh, according to nature. And at the end of the and at the end of the chapter, he is very careful to this precision. And in this sense, uh, this is a question. I have sometimes doubt that if we consider the, the term natural law not in a theological field, it could be very, very dangerous. Um, perhaps we should have to discuss this. I, I, I don't see exactly the problem, but I, I think uh, uh, the first um, law is not the only principle by which man is acting. Of course not. Law is only a precept for the reason to know, to come to know, to judge, to elect what has to be done in a particular uh, uh, situation. Second, natural law, nature, it, 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 when it's linked to law, means uh, what something is made for. It directs to the end. So natural law has to be understood as what is, uh, as I said, uh, whole man's actions are going to be consistent with man's end. What do I need to do for the end, for me to go to, toward the end, which is my natural end, of course, my nature is made for it. In, this, in our case, nature is made for beatitude, uh, human nature is made for beatitude. So the question of natural law is to act according to this final beatitude, which, which is my end. That's the problem of natural law. And, um, uh, well, I, I'm sorry, perhaps we, this doesn't answer, but I, I need to uh, more understand more fully your question. Sorry. sorry. Last question here. Well, this is a, a metaphysical point. What's a relationship between the faculties of appetite and inclination? That is, uh, inclination is something added to the faculty, or is it the faculty? And as you said, that uh, appetite in some way is created by the end. 
what uh, is the part of the emission force and the part of the final force in the reality of appetite? Is appetite created and actualized by the end, or is it only created by the end? Okay. Uh, we can uh, approach the question of appetites from two different uh, uh, viewpoints. Uh, the first viewpoint, the first, because uh, the act is what explains the potency. So the first viewpoint is the point of the end, the viewpoint from the end. The final end is moving all creatures to their proper end, is attracting them to their proper end, which means that the final end is causing inclinations into those creatures. But those creatures are not inclination in substance. They are not substantial inclinations. So because inclinations are operation in the creature, and operation cannot be the substance of a creature, there must be a power which is distinct in the creature that will be the subject of this inclination. So, appetite means inclination. And uh, sometimes, usually, Aquinas uses appetite or inclination as inclination and, and, and he, he, uh, uh, as an act. This is the act. And because there is this act, and this act cannot be a substantial act, we must say that there are potencies for this act. Okay. I come back to the creation, and then I watch things, and, I, and then I see, and I see man, I see uh, this, uh, this, and whatever I look at, and I say, okay, there is this being, and within this being, I will find powers for operation. And when I describe things of this world from this viewpoint, I look at the thing and I designate some powers to operate. And in the second case, the power is prior to the operation. But if we, ha uh, if we want to understand what is final causality, we have to look at things from the end. And from the end, the act is prior to the potency. Let's well,